0: It's the amazing Rico Bronya podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to Rico Bronya, the post-World Baseball Classic Edition of Rico Bronia. It's going to be good to get everybody back. The WBC was a lot of fun. yippity doo dodge. Japan won the gold. We finished second, but we get Pete Alonso back. <laughs> we get Jeff McNeil back. We've already gotten Francisco Lindor back. It's going to be very good to have the guys back. A couple of thoughts on the WBC and its impact on the Mets. Obviously, the Edwin Diaz injury is the headline. But Pete Alonso did not play a lot. And I understand why he didn't. Paul Goldschmidt deserves to be the Team USA first baseman. My one critique of Mark DeRosa was I would have started Pete Alonso with DH. I would have had Kyle Schwarber in the outfield. I would have sat Cedric Mullins. No offense to Cedric Mullins, especially against a lefty. So I would have started Pete. I would have gotten him ABs, but that's just a managerial difference of opinions me and Mark DeRosa have. As far as Pete not getting a lot of at-bats is concerned, you knew it was a risk. You know, you knew when you're on a loaded roster like this, it's possible you're just not going to play a lot. So I would think Pete Alonzo went into this, competition knowing, Hey, I'm good. I'm on this roster. I deserve to be on this roster. I don't know if I'm getting a million bats. you You're also only playing seven games over a few week period. If you're in Port St. Lucie, Florida with the Mets, you know, not that you would play every single game, but the Mets are basically playing every single day. That was not the case with team USA, or really any team in the world baseball classic. So for Pete, Coming back to Met Camp is going to be good just to get some at-bats in and get used to the pitch clock, because these guys escaped the pitch clock rule, which is still an adjustment for hitters, especially a guy like Pete. So it'll be good to have Pete back. It'll be good to have McNeil back. As far as the World Baseball Classic is concerned, uh, I mean, I enjoyed it. I had fun. I got a good rating. I think about 4.5 million people watched the finals between USA and Japan. I've always found the World Baseball Classic to be entertaining during a time of spring training in which I want to poke my eyes out, I am done with spring training. And I said earlier that I'm usually done with spring training about a week in. Yeah, about a week in, I'm done. You know, I'm checking the box scores, I'm watching highlights. Sometimes I'll even watch a game, but it's get me to freaking opening day. The WBC since its inception in 2006 has always been a great distraction for a couple of weeks. I have never freaked out about the injuries. I said that going in. Injuries happen. Injuries are fluky. The Mets have had injuries away from the WBC. The Mets obviously had a big injury at the WBC. It's a part of baseball. It's going to happen. I don't resent the World Baseball Classic because there are injuries. I never have. I'm not going to start now just because of what unfortunately happened to Edwin Diaz. So selfishly as a baseball fan, I've always liked the Baseball Classic as a distraction away from the monotony of spring training. I put on Mets Astros right before we went on the air on our Wednesday program. I put it on, no offense to Steve Gelbs and Jerry Blevins. They did a fine job filling in. I checked out Kodai Senga pitching. And I'm telling you, two pitches into the game, I thought to myself, what am I watching? After what I just watched, (laughs) <laughs> after watching the World Baseball Classic, intensity, the crowd's going nuts, and now I can hear a pin drop as Kodai Senga is facing an Astros double-A player I've never heard of. But I'm a sick man. I'm a sick enough man where I put on Mets spring training less than 24 hours, basically 12 hours,
1: after the World Baseball Classic. Real quick, you did you enjoy the WBC, Pete? I know your kids loved it. Yeah, I got to be honest, I did. It was exciting. I was locked in. Uh, listen, we were rooting for a lot of different teams. The kids were into it. I mean, my from my youngest to my middleest, who doesn't even like baseball, to my oldest, every single one was like jumping up and down when Trey Turner hit that home run, that grand slam. Anthony was bugging out every time Trey hit, Turner hit a home run. Like, he was just like, it was, unfortunately for him, as never seeing a championship at only five years old, it was like a World Series to him. Every game. Well, when the, when USA lost, when Mike Trout
0: struck out to future med Shohei Ohtani, were you depressed or did you very quickly
1: move on and say, Oh, it was a fun game. All right. I'm going to bed. So I was actually had to get into my car, um, at the start of the, the bottom of the ninth or the top of the ninth, excuse me, because I had to go pick up my mother-in-law. So I had to listen to it or whatever. So I didn't have the same feel of sitting there watching it. But yeah, when I heard it, it was deflating. It wasn't like I'd moved on right away. I was actually deflated for like a half a second.
0: Yeah, it took me about two minutes to move on. (laughs) And think about me during a a Mets loss. I'm depressed for an hour, maybe six hours sometimes. (laughs) And in this case, it was like, yeah, that sucks. Okay, let's move on. Otani's incredible, by the way. And, And I remember a year ago, maybe less than a year ago, on an earlier edition of Rico, we did a debate of who would you rather go after aaron judge shohei ohtani and we brought up juan soto and i've always expressed a skepticism of ohtani and i still have it the the skepticism of how long can he do this and i think that's a natural skepticism that's a kind of, i think a fair view to have if you're especially going to give a guy a 10 year deal and pay him you know a billion dollars which is yeah, certainly on the table And that skepticism remains because Shohei Ohtani is literally doing something none of us have ever seen. The Babe Ruth comparison does not work. Babe Ruth didn't do this. He didn't. He didn't pitch and hit at this high a level this amount of times. He didn't. I think 1919 was essentially the only year where Babe Ruth did both. And he threw 160 innings, which for back then was not a lot. I know 160 innings now is a full season. It wasn't a lot. And he got 500 plate appearances. That was it. So Otani is doing something no human being has done. But you watch him in the WBC, and obviously we've watched him over the last few years, when we can. It's not like we're watching every Angels game. And you look at, A, his stuff on the mound. You look at his swing. You look at his speed. You know, beating out that infield hit. And you say to yourself, this guy's a god. Like, this guy is as close to... A god playing baseball as we've ever seen, and I know you could be listening to this saying, "Oh, Evan, he hasn't proven anything yet." Well, uh, playoffs. Uh, the Angels suck. We all know that. We all know the Angels are a bad franchise, and they're a bad team. And I, does Shohei Ohtani pitching and hitting well in the WBC prove that he'd be prime time in October? Eh, sometimes. It's just being at a slump in the wrong time. It's not necessarily being coming up small in a big spot. But Otani in the World Baseball Classic, that's his super championship. So I have no fear that Otani can't perform in October. I have no fear that Otani can't hit in New York. And I come to the realization, and maybe a lot of you guys have already gotten there with this, where I don't think there's a price too high, fan. I don't. I I think you walk up to him with a blank check and say, Fill it out. We want you on the team. Because the reward for a guy like this is, it's its the greatest reward ever. It's an ace and a slugger and a guy who can steal 25 bases. Like, it's not even human. He's a creator player on MLB The Show. That's what he is. So I've gotten to the place now with Otani, and i we're not going to spend a lot of time during the season talking about this. I've mentioned before, it's next year, it's next year. Let's worry about next year, next year. I'm bringing it up because we just witnessed this in the WBC and then we'll forget about it. Okay. Until the off season, I would literally give him whatever he wants. And the risk is, well, maybe he won't be able to do both for a long time. Okay. As long as he can do one of those two things. Well, at least I got something and the reward if he can do both is a baseball player that would be worth $80 million a year, maybe more. Because he's a $40 million a year pitcher, potentially, and a $35 million a year batter. And the fact that that only takes up one roster spot, <laughs> that adds more value to it. And I got to tell you, I was so intrigued by him coming out of the bullpen. And I started thinking to myself, wait a second. Now, I know he's a starter. He wants to be a starter. But we have the new Otani DH role now in Major League Baseball, where he can start a game as DH, leave the game as a starter, but remain in the game. So based on that rule, that would lead me to think, Pete, he's the DH, and he could come in a pitch in the ninth inning, and even if he comes out of the game, he's still the DH. So I don't even have to worry about that weird, hey, how do I somehow use him out of the bullpen and keep his bat in the lineup? He can do both. I, I, I am in a full half. I'm in a trance now for Shohei Otani.
1: The only place that Shohei Ohtani is not worth it is is in fancy baseball because you have to do dra- you have to draft two Shohei Ohtanis to make it work. That's right. the only place it doesn't work. In real life, the guy is a he's a cheat code. It's really yeah. unbelievable. And and I I gotta say this and it's 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 not a hot take. It is what it is. He's the greatest athlete of all time because what other person could dominate their sport the way he can the way he does? There's no the, there's no football player that plays offensive defense. Right. Right? I mean, yeah. basketball you can't, but again, it's different. It's just, he's unbelievable. I think that there may be guys capable
0: of doing both and that teams won't allow it. I, I'm sure that there have been guys in the past that could have pitched, could have pitched, could have hit. I, I, I'm not denying that. He's obviously been able to fight through where in Japan they let him do both. In Major League Baseball, he basically said, I want to do both. But he's still doing it. So I wouldn't dismiss it by saying other guys would have done it, no big deal. I'm acknowledging other guys may have been able to do it, but Otani is the only one who's done it. So I I gotta give him credit for that. Yeah, I I, seriously, and we'll see what happens this regular season. Blank check. Now that that's how I would treat free agency. I would say, look, you just tell me what you want, and we'll give it to you. And he's obviously gonna have to want New York, which who knows? I have no idea. As far as the rest of Met Camp is concerned, Kodai Senga looked good. I mean, looked okay, I guess. It's it's tough to know. It's just, we got to see him, Major League Baseball games, regular season, lineups, uh, how Buck uses him, how quickly he'll pull him out of a game. But so far in spring training, he looks fine. I noticed he was beating the pitch clock quick in that first inning. Like, he was getting his pitches off at the seven-second mark, so he was not using every bit. Of that pitch clock. Speaking of which, David Robertson apparently hates the pitch clock, which I'm not surprised about. I read back at some past comments David Robertson has had about Rob Manfred, Major League Baseball. He had a comment last year in which he said, Every rule change they've ever created has sucked. So he's not a big fan of anything baseball has done, which is fine. I mean, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with him on a lot of things. Uh, I'm not worried about someone hating the pitch clock and then struggling because of it. David Robertson, to his credit, is a pro. He's a pro. And he's a guy who's had a long career. He's done it in some pressurized situations, obviously with the Yankees on multiple occasions. He's come back from a major injury. David Robertson can hate the pitch clock all he wants. That's okay. He's going to adjust. And if David Robertson struggles this year, which he may, you never know from year to year with relievers, to me, it will not be about the pitch clock. So him saying he hates the pitch clock, they should get rid of it, whatever. I mean, honestly, I don't even care anymore. He, he can hate it. He can do whatever he wants with it. You got to live with it. Those are the rules. You, you just have to figure it out. The tweaks that they made to the pitch clock are very minor. And I thought for a second, maybe they were going to give batters a second time out or something, and they're not. So we're going to deal with this. We are going to live in a pitch clock world. I read that. In the first two weeks of spring training, on average, there were two violations per game. Now, is that a high number to you, Pete, if I told you on average there are going to be two violations per
1: game? It doesn't sound like a lot, but it sounds like enough that I could still screw up depending on when the time is. But yeah, it doesn't sound like a lot. Two games, not bad. Obviously, if the violation is on
0: a 3-2 pitch with the bases loaded... That's a big deal. I, I Most of these violations have not been that. They just haven't. Right? They've been minor, to say the least. I did see one with Luis Severino and the Yankees a few days ago in which they shouldn't have called a violation. Severino was in his – he was about to pitch. Like, he was moving his leg back as the clock hit zero. And the rule I understand it as, he has to be in his windup. He was already in his windup. So I thought they were too quick to call that violation against the Yankees. And Aaron Boone lost his mind. He got pissed off. He started screaming, Jerry. Jerry Lane was the umpire. Jerry, what are you doing? I think that you got to let it get to zero without the guy moving his leg to be in his windup. I wouldn't be super, super picky with it. So I saw that violation, but it started with two violations per game. Now I'm reading it's down to one violation per game. So first two weeks of spring training, two, last couple of weeks down to one. That's why I assume once this season starts, I think they're going to be rare. I don't think we're going to see a lot of these pitch clock violations, in my opinion. Now let's get to Francisco Alvarez. Francisco Alvarez was optioned to AAA. I don't think that's a surprise. He is not hitting camp. He never really had much of a shot to make the team with the makeup of this roster. But Buck Showalter said this about Francisco Alvarez. Would Francisco Alvarez spend the entire year in the minor leagues? That was the question. And he said, I hope so, in some ways. That means we're doing real well, and our catchers are healthy and doing well. I hope that's the case. He's got a chance to be called up in September. Anything else, I said, would be promoting the failure or the health of one of the guys that we have. And we like our two guys. They're in the top seven or eight if catching in baseball. We're lucky to have both of them. I, ho- I hope at some point Francisco is as good as they are. Obviously, the two guys he's referring to Omar Narvaez, Tomas Nino. What do you think of those comments,
1: Pete? So, the first thing is obviously like, yeah, uh, you know, if the team is doing well and they don't need him, that's a good sign. So, I I, I get that aspect, but I really think that they just don't. Not, I said it. I don't think he's going to play now at all this season. I think he's. 2024 is the earliest you're going to see him. They don't want to put him up there at all. They're, they, whether it's for defensive issues, which I think is the biggest thing. Also, he wasn't hitting. I just don't, don't think they, they think that he's ready. Yeah, I, Buck, Buck says a lot of things, and he's right about it.
0: Obviously, if Francisco Alvarez is called up before September 1st, something failed. He's, he's 100% right. Either the catchers were not producing or getting hurt, or the right-handed DH options were all just so awful and so bad, Darren Ruff, Mark Vientos, Eduardo Escobar from the right, like, take your pick, that they basically looked at him and said, oh, my God, we have no choice. Because I think if he hits the crap out of the ball and continues to improve defensively, he is still blocked from playing here because they clearly don't want to carry three catchers. I don't think carrying carrying three catchers is very difficult right now. In a world in which you're going to carry 13 pitchers. Because that means you only have four bench pieces. And if you have four bench pieces. And you have three catchers on your roster. Two of your four bench pieces. Are taken up by guys that are catchers. So unless that catcher can play another position. It it really clogs. Your mobility. Or your flexibility is the proper word. So. It it becomes difficult for him to get up here. Unless something really, really bad happens. And. And. My hope is something bad doesn't happen as far as when and why they don't trust them. Them going after Omar Narvaez showed us, and maybe we didn't admit it as fully at the time because I was still under the world of, well, you can make three catchers work. Here's how you can do it. This is why it makes sense. I think a part of why I always love three catchers was under the idea that I'm not carrying 13 pitchers. That's a big part of it. If you're carrying 12 pitchers on your roster and now all of a sudden you got five bench pieces, You can further rationalize having three catchers on your roster, especially when you're probably going to use two of those guys every single game, because you're going to pinch hit for your weak hitting catcher. But the Mets, like everybody else feel married to the idea of carrying 13 pitchers. And if you're carrying 13 pitchers and you only have four bench pieces, it just, it makes it really difficult. It just makes it very, very difficult to have that kind of flexibility. So Alvarez is stuck. He is. And it it kind of stinks because I think we were hopeful during the offseason. He could have been that big bat, that huge big bat that the Mets needed. But he's not going to come up here unless something really, really bad happens. And it's disappointing, but I think when you look at the makeup of this roster,
1: it's also understandable. Yeah, and again, but that leads to bigger issues too, bigger things. It's like you're right. It's understandable why they're not moving him up, but that continues to give me this pit in my stomach that the Mets are – what Billy Epler said and what Steve Cohen said, they're not trading their their uh, youth. They're trying to build it. In doing so, they're going to leave as many down in the minors as possible. Now, I'm not sure if that's a financial thing or that's just them just really trying to keep them no. down there to grow as much as possible. I, I,
0: I think in the case of – I think every everybody's different.
1: And I don't think we
0: can look at every young player who's not here with the same broad stroke of why they're not. I think in the case of Alvarez, it's being a catcher. It's being a catcher in a world in which you've got two Hall of Fame pitchers in the rotation. You've got a guy coming over from Japan who's making an adjustment. You've got brand new rules with the pitch clock where I think for you add all that stuff up. It's not just those things, but you add all that stuff up with him being really young, really, really young, they just don't trust him. They don't trust him to catch two, three, four times a week. They don't. And I think that they view long-term as it's better for him to learn than to just be up here DHing. What I had hoped uh, during the offseason, and I had said it numerous times, is that Alvarez DHs two, three times a week. He catches two, three times a week. So he does both. So he's continuing to learn, except he's learning at the major league level. The Mets don't want that. That's what it's come down to. They, they really want him to learn the position and get better. I am hopeful that next year he's the catcher on this team. Now, I don't know how much long You're not going to have him have another year at AAA, barring some kind of major setback. I think that's a big part of what's going on here. They really wouldn't trust a guy that young and that experienced with a staff like this under these circumstances.
1: That's fine, but eventually you got to cut the cord. And like you said, it's better to have him learn with the veterans. No, like this is the place he should learn. Like we're talking about, like I know that I, I hate to do the comparison of like, hey, Aaron Rodgers is going to come in and Zach Wilson is going to learn from Aaron Rodgers, yes, because he's going to be working with him, right? That's the whole point is that you work with somebody and you learn. I understand. Listen, J.P. Aaron C.B. is down there in AAA, so he's had uh, professional, you know, experience. But he's not the same as Tomas Needle, who's currently pitching or catching Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer.
0: Yeah, but I think he would have to learn by doing it. And are they committed to catching him two, three times a week, which to me was the number. And clearly they're not. Now, will he end up here for unforeseen reasons? Dude, it's on the table. Because keep this in mind, as much as you value a catcher handling a pitching staff, If the Mets are going to get awful production from behind the plate, which is what they got last year, when you think about what McCann did, what Nito did, their catchers last year had an OPS of 5.69. Their catchers last year hit 2.17. Their catchers last year hit seven home runs in total. If the numbers are as bad as that, which basically means Tomas Nito does the same thing he did last year in the 88 games he played, and let's say Omar Narvaez doesn't bounce back the way we're hoping, that could change things, especially if the rest of the lineup is struggling. But Buck's right. If any of these things happen or a guy gets hurt or they're getting no production right-handed DH, that's not good. Like We're not sitting here hoping that bad crap happens, except in one area. And that continues to be a theme as we enter the final week of spring training. Darren Ruff is still here, and Darren Ruff is sucking as much as he's ever sucked. And I have to admit, Pete, I made a grand prediction to you a while back. He won't be on the team. He won't be on the team. He won't be on the team. Darren Ruff is not going to be on the team. Don't worry. Well, Darren Ruff played on Wednesday or on Tuesday, I should say. Not Wednesday. I get my days confused. On Wednesday against the Houston Astros, Darren Ruff played. He played third base, uh, first base. He went over three. It dropped his batting average to 130, which is essentially what he hit last year for the New York Mets. I'm starting to get, not losing confidence yet, Pete, but I'm getting nervous. I mean, I, I'm starting to get nervous that we are a week out from opening day. He has shown nothing. Nothing. He's hitting 130, and yet Buck talks about, yeah, yeah he's going to face those lefties. Yeah, he's going to be out there. And that will piss me off. That will give me a bad taste in my mouth going into opening day for an administration and a group that I want to trust and I mostly like. They won 101 games last year. I've mostly liked the offseason outside of the DeGrom debacle. And if Darren Ruff is on this roster after this kind of spring training and what he did last year and the way Beatty and Vientos have performed, boy, that would be – that's a tough pill to swallow.
1: And and I promise you, I swear, I will not say I told you so when he's on the roster. (laughs) I won't do that. But this is one thing that bothers me because it's funny how quick they were to cut ties with Robinson Cano – because it wasn't their mistake, but it this is their choice to bring in Darren Ruff. That Billy Epler made that move, and it's just the stubbornness of of people in high positions. That there's a reason why we brought Darren Ruff in, and God, we're gonna see it. Even if it's for a weak stretch, I'm gonna show you that he can actually hit the ball off a freaking left hander. My, my my question would be if they continue
0: to have that attitude, like you said, Pete, and he's on the team and he is the if he's on the team, he has a role. And that role is he is the right handed D.H. against left handed pitching. How much time do you give him then? You know, he's had a bad spring training. He was bad last year. You also have internal options that have done really well. Beatty is a little bit more complicated, but we'll get to that again in a a second. And obviously, Mark Vientos is the simple one. Vientos is just the guy. And he's mostly had a good spring training. How much longer do you give him? Like, if he starts the year on the major league roster, do you give him three weeks? Do you give him a month? Like, how much more crap do we have to watch before they finally say, okay, we got to take RL. This isn't working. This was a really, really bad trade.
1: I bet, I bet two months. The reason why two I say that months. is because I, the reason why I say that is so frustrating, but the reason why I say it is because there's going to be some sort of injury. They're going to give him at least a month. There's going to be some sort of injury that keeps him and prolongs him to be on the roster for an additional month. If by two months he still hasn't hit, then he's gone. But by then he'll catch fire for like a week or two. Ugh. And they'll be like, oh, well, we're justified to look. Here, This is who we told you he was, well, and that's the problem, dude. You know, it
0: sucks. You know what really sucks? So on opening day, the Mets are going to take on Sandy Alcantara, and so he won't play. In game two and game three of the series, I'm assuming they're going to throw Jesus Lazardo, a lefty, and Trevor Rogers, a lefty. So we, we're we going to see Darren Ruff, <laughs> potentially if he makes the team, if I'm wrong, back-to-back pace. Uh, You got Vientos and you got Beatty. Yeah, I guess you have Tim LaCastro too because it does look like Brandon Nemo is going to be ready for opening day, which is really surprising to me. I, I don't know if it was being negative, but I thought when he went down with that knee injury uh, last Friday that he was done. I really, I really thought it was going to be bad and he's doing agility drills. He's working out in the outfield. The Mets are hoping to get his bat in the lineup this weekend, final weekend of spring training. So it certainly feels like Nimmo's going to be ready. He may not play every, every, every day, but it looks like he's going to be on the roster right outside the gate, which means, as we've talked about all year, there's one roster spot. And if it's Darren Ruff, it's Darren Ruff. If it's not Darren Ruff, it's Mark Vientos. If it's not Mark Vientos, it's Brett Beatty. And if it's not Brett Beatty, it's Tim LaCastro. Though, once want you keep this in mind. If the Mets are going to go six-man rotation right out the gate, they could keep David Peterson and Tyler McGill in the minor leagues to start the year. They could keep them down and then recall them before they make a start. So it is possible that the Mets could have 12 pitchers, five bench pieces, which would allow you to keep the right-handed DH plus Tim LaCastro. Now that's a temporary thing because eventually you're going to have to call up the pitchers that you want to have And eventually you're going to have 13 arms. So I'm hopeful that they don't have 13 arms. So as far as Beatty and Vientos is concerned, because we've talked a lot about this and how Vientos has the natural edge in just being the right-handed DH. The other option, and we've mentioned it passingly, but I'm starting to warm up to the idea, is Beatty's the third baseman, period. Like he'll face lefties, he'll face righties and you just throw him in the mix. So that opening series against Miami, he's the third baseman against Jesus Lazardo. He is your third baseman. And Eduardo Escobar would be the right-handed DH. You know, we saw his splits last year. We saw how much better he was as a right-hand hitter. So Escobar isn't completely buried by any stretch. He's just the right-handed DH. Daniel Vogelbach against right. And Vogelbach's had a bad camp. I'm not panicking about Vogelbach. We'll get, look, he has a bad April. We'll talk. For now, I'm okay. That's his job. He's going to mash right-handed pitching. At least that's the hope, in theory. So one option is you just say to Brett Beatty, you're the guy. You know, you're the top third base prospect in baseball. You're going to face lefties. You're going to face righties. Let's go. And essentially, Eduardo Escobar becomes the right-handed DH. The other option, as we have talked about, is Vientos is the right-handed DH. And that would mean Brett Beatty starts the year at AAA. Given those options, and then you've got the LeCastro option, which is great for versatility and great for speed off the bench. I don't know who makes who's the right handed DH at that point. I guess you could go Tommy Fam. You could go Escobar and just spruce up your defense and play Guillerme at third base. You could do that. You could say, you know what? F it. We're just going to improve our defense against left handed pitching. Escobar slides over, he's the DH. And we have better defense because Luis Guillerme is our third baseman. Right now, week to go, we've seen the performances. Obviously, it doesn't include Darren Ruff. You want him out. Who takes that last spot, LeCastro, Beatty, or Vientos?
1: Uh, um, it's so tough. I think that deserve deserves it, though. I do. And I like that idea of Escobar just going to the right-handed DH right there. Because let's be serious. I've been watching Escobar on the field. He don't look too great from third base. His arm is kind of weak. So, it's it, I mean, we're talking about defensive-wise. Between Beatty and Escobar, they're both a crapshoot. Um, so, I think Beatty deserves it. I, I would say that. And then if you really want, like you said, you have Guillerme to spell Beatty for the uh, left-handed um Left-handed pitchers, you can play defense. You know, I, I don't know, but but I think Beatty deserves a shot. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, I'm I'm very mixed about this. I I hate to go back to the same thing because it pisses me off. I just wish that the Mets would break the mold and have five guys off the bench. I think you lose a lot of flexibility in regards to this when you're stuck with only four bench pieces.
1: I don't like it. I don't like it at all. And you could do well, it. With- who's going to be? Th- Go ahead. Who's gonna be the bullpen? Who's the bullpen? Like well, that's the other thing, too. Like we got to think about the bullpen. So, like, I mean, it's not it's not cut, cut and dry right yeah, now. Yeah, I
0: I think where we are with this bullpen right now is I think there are two guys that have kind of created distance between them and everybody else. Now, this also doesn't we don't know if Brooks Raleigh is gonna be ready and is coming off of the injured or not gonna start the year on the injured list. But right now, here's the way I would view it. You've got your six starters, though you can play games with those guys in terms of when you want to put them on the roster. You've got Adam Adovino. You've got David Robertson. You've got Drew Smith. And if Raleigh is healthy, you got Brooks Raleigh. That's four guys. That leaves you with three to four guys left to fill out those spots. I think that John Curtis has absolutely won a job. John Curtis has had a great spring training. He's a guy that Mets rehabbed a year ago from Tommy John. So I would throw John Curtis into spot number five. I think Steven Nagosik's going to make the team too. The out-of-options thing is going to help him. Uh, so I think he makes the team. The other guy, non-roster, is Tommy Hunter. Tommy Hunter's pitched well. We know Buck loves him. I think Tommy Hunter makes the team. The last guy I'm curious about is Dennis Santana. And I bring him up because the Mets just claimed him off waivers. He's out-of-options. So if he doesn't make the team, the Mets are going to put him back on waivers. They're going to hope nobody claims him, and then they're going to send him down to AAA. I think he's got a shot right now. So the bullpen thing, at Jeff Brigham too, I don't want to ignore him, but the guys I feel comfortable about right now, and I'll rank them in order of comfort, would be John Curtis, would be Tommy Hunter. I'd put Hunter a little bit ahead of Nogosik, and I'd go Steven Nagosik. I think those three guys... Fill out this bullpen along with Adavino, Robertson, Raleigh if he's healthy, Andrew Smith. That's where I think we're at with this bullpen in this moment. And, and look, a trade could happen. Maybe they'll dump Darren Ruff and they'll get some reliever back.
1: I don't know. And and that means that they. I guess I'm assuming they didn't like what they saw with Britain.
0: I don't know. I mean, it's it's a good point. I don't know what's going on with Zach Britton. You no, know, he hasn't signed with anybody. So. Until he signs with somebody, I can't rule him out with the Mets. And obviously, we didn't see him throw. In theory, I like Zach Britton. I do. Another year removed from Tommy John's surgery. Another lefty to add to this bullpen. A guy who's done it before. A guy who's closed games before. Uh, a guy Balka obviously has great experience with. I'm not going to make the same joke everyone else makes. Hopefully, he'll use him in a big spot. <laughs> we all know. We know the deal. <laughs> we know what happened. I would not be surprised if there's also a deal coming. And by deal, I don't mean the Mets are trading for some top reliever. I don't mean they're trading for uh, Bednar. They're trading for, you know, Devin Williams. or They're trading for Alexis Diaz. I just mean adding another arm. You know, there are roster crunches all around baseball. We're not the only team trying to figure out who should make a team and guys who are out of options, but what do you do with them? So I think there could be a match with a reliever we're not thinking about that's out of options. I think that's absolutely on the table as we get closer to opening day. I'm damn excited. Now, one last thing. We've talked uh, about Darren Roth and how bad he's been in spring training. I would like to take this time to honor some of the best spring training performances we have ever seen as Met fans that turned out to mean absolutely nothing. That's right. Some of the great spring training performances that turned into hot Garbage because the guy sucked once the season started. Let's start with last year. Why don't we go to 2022? What have I told you? There was a guy in a very short sample size. It was a short spring training that hit 423 with two home runs, six RBIs, and an OPS of 1,377. It was only 26 at bats. That guy who ravaged spring training a year ago was poised to have a breakout year, would start the year with the Mets, and would end the year in AAA. We are talking about Dominic Smith. That's right. Tom had a huge camp in 2022. Why don't we go back to 2021? There was a guy with 370 in 54 at-bats, had 14 RBIs, had an OPS of 1,063, By the end of this season, this man was giving the thumbs down to Met fans. We're talking about the 2021 version of Francisco Lindor. Huge spring training, crappy season. But why stop there? Remember 2019? Mets made a big trade. You may have remembered it. They made what is now being referred to as the Edwin Diaz trade. But the other guy they got in the trade was a fellow by the name of Robinson Cano. Well, Robinson Cano. In 2019 spring training, hit 441. 441. He had an OPS of 1086 in 59 at bats. Robinson Cano, ladies and gentlemen, thank you, Robbie. You piece of crap. How about this one? How about that? This is amazing to me. I'm about to give you three examples, Pete, all from the same year. Oh, what a spring training! In 2015. Obviously, the Mets ended up having a very good year that year. They won the National League pennant. The three names I'm about to mention, though, did not contribute. Let's start with a guy you have probably forgot existed. He was a catcher. In 50 at-bats, hit 340 with four home runs, nine RBIs, and a 1,000 OPS. Does anyone out there remember the great Johnny Manel? Well, yeah, he had a big spring training. How about this guy? He's got a really good spring training. He had six home runs in spring training, which is an absurd number. He did that in 60 at-bats. He had an OPS near 1,000. Remember the big free agent signing of 2014 into 2015? Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Kadire. But here's my favorite. What I'll never forget about this guy was this guy hit four fifteen in 53 at-bats with four home runs, 10 RBIs, and a 1,154 OPS. I best remember this guy for hitting cleanup. You may have to fact check me on this one. Hitting cleanup against Clayton Kershaw in the middle of July. And we all said we've hit rock bottom when this guy's hitting cleanup. That guy, of course, John Mayberry. So in 2015, the New York Mets had John Mayberry, Michael Kadire, and Johnny Minnell have huge spring trainings. And it meant nothing. But let's not forget the king of all spring trainings. And I apologize. I could not find his stats because it was a long time ago. And maybe they just weren't as uh, good in keeping stats. But Butch Husky was the king of spring training. And he had a fine med career, but never turned out to be that great. Now, with that said, can I give you two honorable mentions? Two guys who had crappy spring trainings and then had really good years. Let's go back to 2014. This guy hit 185 with two home runs. He then responded by hitting 30 home runs, driving in 92 runs with an 830 OPS. Who could forget Lucas Duda? That was the year I think him and Ike Davis were competing for the first base job. And, and Lucas Duda sucked, but ended up having a really good year. The other guy had a really good season in 2021. Um, no, you know what? I screwed that up. I don't think he had a good season in 2021. He had a good season in 2019. My bad. I was going to give you an example of JD Davis having a bad spring training, but his big year for us was 2019. I was thinking about 2021. So take that one out. So, really, the only bad spring training that turned into a
1: great year I could think of was Lucas Duda. <laughs>
0: I, I got no other examples. Sorry.
1: Mike Davis never had a nice spring training and then had valley fever a few months later and then uh, basically fell off the face of oh, the earth.
0: Yes, yes, yeah.
1: Well, I, I, I thought I gave
0: you enough examples of guys having big <laughs> spring trainings and sucking that I wanted to stop. You know, so if Brett Bailey makes the team and it's 225, just remember having a big spring training means absolutely nothing. And that is the truth, good and bad. A bad spring training, a good spring training, It really doesn't mean anything. The reason we make a big deal with certain guys, I think, is when they're continuations of what they did the previous year. So I think a part of why we've really beaten up Darren Roth and you know, Yankee fans up until recently were really beating up Josh Donaldson was because they had bad years last year. So they were more kind of continuing their badness this year. But for the most part, good spring trainings, bad spring trainings, they just don't mean that much. That's the reality. Uh, we got a lot coming up next couple of days on the Rico, our very special realignment, radical realignment edition of Rico. That'll be a bonus episode. We will post Friday night. We also have our Yankees versus Mets bets edition of Rico Bronia, our season predictions, our Met predictions, uh, analyzing the final roster once it's announced. And we will try to give you some kind of instant reaction to opening day, which is a I mean, it's a week away, which is freaking crazy. So we got a lot of Ricos coming up as we march towards opening day. You can email the pod anytime to b at gmail.com. And obviously, check me and Pete out on the fan. I'm on a two with Craig. Pete, obviously, at 10 a.m. producing for Tiki and Tierney. Thank you for listening, downloading, reviewing, doing whatever you do with Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.